This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. In December 1985, a hunter in Georgia's Chattahoochee National Forest stumbled across something so weird that he could hardly believe it. A 175-pound black bear was dead on the ground. But it had not been shot by a hunter or attacked by another predator, nor had it died from natural causes. Surrounding the huge animal were around 40 open plastic containers with traces of white powder. When park authorities removed the bear and conducted an autopsy, the results were, well, heart-stopping. Officials discovered that it had died from, of all things, a massive drug overdose. Apparently, the bear had spent its final hours freebasing almost 90 pounds of cocaine. The discovery was shocking enough as it was, especially for national park authorities and wildlife activists. But as officials investigated the strange occurrence, the story that developed was so full of intrigue, conspiracy, corruption, and abuse of power that it could have been mistaken for a best-selling fictional action thriller. As unreal as this story may sound, however, it's anything but fiction. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. The story begins in the deep south of the U.S., with a family of privilege from the Bible Belt state of Kentucky. On October 30th, 1944, Andrew Carter Thornton II was born to parents Carter and Peggy. He was the oldest of the couple's three children, and grew up in wealth and opportunity. The Thorntons ran a lucrative business breeding thoroughbred horses. Andrew, or Drew as he preferred, was sent to the best private school Lexington, Kentucky could offer. He was active within the St. Peter's Episcopal Church, and spent much of his spare time at the prestigious Iroquois Polo Club. When Drew was 14, his parents enrolled him in Sewanee Military Academy located in Tennessee. While there, he became close friends with another student named Bradley Bryant. Like Drew, Bradley came from an affluent and influential family. It was the beginning of a lifelong, not to mention eventful, friendship. After graduating high school in 1962, Drew briefly attended the University of Kentucky and joined the Reserve Officers Training Corps. Attention! Right! The call of military service had always been appealing to Drew. He had dreams of adventure, of seeing new places, and experiencing new cultures. So, he dropped out of college and enlisted in the Army. He trained to be a paratrooper and was ultimately stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. When it came to jumping out of airplanes, Drew had no fear and quickly earned a reputation as a highly competent skydiver. By the time he was discharged, not only was Andrew Thornton an accomplished parachutist, 
but he'd been awarded the National Defense Service Medal, Armed Forces Expeditionary Medal, and a Purple Heart. He also received the Bronze Oak Leaf Cluster for his service in the Dominican Republic, where he was wounded. Drew returned home to Lexington in 1965 and began working at the family business. He got his pilot's license and continued parachuting in his free time. He quickly became known for pulling off risky maneuvers, like releasing the chute well below 2,000 feet. A few years later, in July 1968, Drew got married. But domestic life was not for the military-trained skydiving adrenaline junkie. He missed the action found on the front lines of battle. So, just weeks after his wedding, he joined the Lexington County Police Department. Drew earned a degree in law enforcement and focused much of his police work on narcotics. While the new career path might have been the solution to his problems, his new wife was growing increasingly uncomfortable. His need to constantly live on the edge was creating a major rift between the newlyweds. She wanted stability, comfort, and safety, while he was craving danger, thrills, and adventure. Perhaps not surprisingly, the couple divorced a couple of years later. Andrew Thornton became a member of Lexington's first narcotics squad and quickly made connections at the Drug Enforcement Agency's field office in Louisville. At this point, though, something had shifted in Drew. Something fundamental. The adrenaline rush he felt going undercover and busting drug dealers had become routine, and like any addict, he needed more. The problem was that all the excitement he was looking for was on the other side of the law. Drew was charming, intelligent, and extremely egotistical. He was also increasingly paranoid, convinced the end of the world was around the corner. Preparedness and security was his motto, and he became an adopter of the survivalist lifestyle and prepper mentality. While working as a police officer, Drew met Henry Vance, who had also come from a prominent Lexington family. Through connections, Henry got a job at the sheriff's department, and he and Drew quickly became close work buddies. Like a pair out of a 1970s TV show, Drew was the thrill-seeking undercover cop, while Henry was the smooth-talking public relations officer of the department's drug task force. As the team was the first of its kind in the area, Henry and Drew made up their own rules as they went along. There was zero oversight, and even less transparency, so they could pretty much do whatever they wanted. Drew started helping himself to the inventory of confiscated drugs. He was even suspected of planting narcotics to increase his arrest record and add to his reputation as a no-nonsense, uncompromising cop. In May 1973, Henry was fired after being caught for, of all things, forging his boss's signature. His boss being the sheriff. Thanks to his family's influence, though, no further action was taken. In fact, despite the absolutely humiliating exit, within 12 months, Henry Vance would be working in the Kentucky State Legislature. Around the same time, Drew was attending law school at the University of Kentucky. He graduated in 1976 and a year later quit the Lexington Police Force. 
he joined a local law firm, but never ended up practicing law. Instead, Drew went into business with his former military high school pal, Bradley Bryant. Two years earlier, Bradley had established a private security company called Executive Protection Limited. On the surface, it was a legitimate bodyguard service, catering to wealthy clients. Behind the scenes, though, Bradley and Drew used the business as a front to hide the real operation, drug trafficking. During his many trips to Las Vegas, Bradley had acquired quite the network of criminals. The money he was making from the drug trade was too good to pass up, and over the years, his ambitions grew. The old friends had big dreams to expand the business by transporting marijuana, cocaine, and firearms on a massive scale. Drew nicknamed the business and its various associates, The Company. Everyone involved with The Company had a specific role. Drew organized logistics and was in charge of transportation. Bradley brought in the money, thanks to his underground connections. Henry Vance, who by now was working alongside the Kentucky governor, used his position and connections to always keep them several steps ahead of the law. Drew was the operator on the ground, driving or flying to meet suppliers all over Kentucky. He was the tactician, the specialist, and therefore was always the one transporting the drugs. Back in Lexington, the shipments were broken down and distributed to local dealers. The thrill of carrying out a successful operation appealed to Drew's insatiable ego. Flying low under the radar at night with a plane full of illegal contraband also satisfied his need for excitement. The nefarious underbelly of Executive Protection Limited was doing quite well. So much so that Bradley wanted to take it international. In mid-1978, he was able to convince powerful drug bosses, Lee and Jimmy Shagra, to join the company. The brothers had direct links to drug cartels all over Colombia. As much as Drew loved the money, he knew the Shagra family was under federal investigation. He didn't want to risk drawing any attention to their operation through an association with the brothers. But Bradley convinced his partner the opportunity was too good to pass up. Drew relented and would later regret it. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. In late 1978, the company's first big operation with the Shagra family was in the works. 
The plan was to fly 20,000 pounds of marijuana from Columbia to Kentucky. But that December, Lee Shagra was shot dead. Drew felt increasingly uneasy about their partnership with the cartel. However, given their violent reputation, there was little he could do about it now. In January 1979, Drew pulled off the first Colombian job, transporting 10 tons of marijuana. He arranged for the plane, which was registered under Bradley's name, to be taken elsewhere once he landed in the U.S. But that didn't work out as planned. The aircraft was never moved, and when it was found by airport officials, they figured it was abandoned. They contacted police, who found traces of drugs on board and turned it over to the DEA. The investigation didn't go anywhere, but another development was about to complicate things. cold-blooded killing of U.S. Judge John Wood here in San Antonio rocked the nation. The murder ignited the takedown of the Texas drug kingpin. Jimmy Shagra was due in court to face drug charges. However, when the presiding federal judge was shot dead, Drew became even more nervous about their association. Now, anyone even remotely connected with the drug lord was under the microscope. Drew pleaded with Bradley to end the deal, but his friend and business partner had no intention of walking away. Not only did he want to continue the relationship, but Bradley had already taken steps to try and take over the Chagra Empire. The disagreement ended their friendship and their business partnership. A year later, in 1981, Drew found himself in trouble thanks to his former friend. When hotel staff smelled marijuana coming from Bradley's room, they called authorities. Officers arrived, and when they searched his room, they found more than just weed. The list included semi-automatic firearms, fake IDs, $25,000 in cash, and a black book containing the contact information of several people within his criminal network. That included Drew. The items were going to be used to trade for a shipment of cocaine, but Bradley told investigators that he was actually working undercover for the CIA. He would later clarify that while he didn't work for the CIA, he was working closely with the agency on a case. Of course, none of that was true, but it did draw further attention to him. As a result, Drew was one of 25 associates indicted in Fresno, California. The group was accused of conspiracy to import and distribute 1,000 pounds of marijuana, as well as theft of ammunition, night vision scopes, tasers, and an anti-aircraft weapon from the China Lake Naval Base. A Lexington warehouse had been used to store much of the stolen hardware. Drew pleaded not guilty, but didn't stick around to find out what happened. He fled California and headed across the country to North Carolina. His life on the run did not last long. He was arrested a few months later and taken back to Fresno. In early 1982, Drew pleaded no contest to the misdemeanor drug charge, and as part of the deal, the felony charges were dropped. Drew was given a six-month prison sentence, fined $500, 
placed on probation for five years, and had his license to practice law suspended. Bradley was handed a 15-year sentence behind bars after pleading guilty to the charges against him. In the three years following Drew's conviction, there were suspicions that he was somehow involved in several deaths around the country. Deaths that were closely connected to the company's business interests. In 1984, the apparent suicide of Drew's friend and former head of the Kentucky DEA, Harold Brown, only raised further questions. As soon as Drew was released from prison, he went straight back to the company and tried to get things organized again. Unknown to Drew, however, his time was limited. On September 9, 1985, the now 40-year-old and his karate instructor turned bodyguard, Bill Leonard, flew to Columbia for a drug shipment. Bill later claimed that as far as he knew, they were flying to the Bahamas for some sun, until Drew announced their real destination mid-flight. He said he had little choice and insisted that he never would have voluntarily participated in drug smuggling. In Colombia, the men collected 200 pounds of cocaine wrapped in yellow plastic. They were concealed inside burlap bags, which were then stuffed inside duffel bags and strapped to parachutes. The drugs they were transporting had a street value of $37 million. Two days later, Drew and Bill hopped back into their Cessna and took off for the trip back to Kentucky. They were flying over Florida when the men heard chatter over the radio that wasn't good. Turns out, they were being followed by federal agents. If they wanted to avoid capture, they would have to ditch the plane and jump. In a panic, Bill started kicking the bags of cocaine out the door of the plane, which apparently infuriated Drew. The pair started to fight, but the complete absurdity of the situation became clear, and before long, they were laughing. Thinking quickly, Drew devised an escape plan. Bill had never used a parachute before, and was given a quick lesson on how to make it safely to the ground. Drew then strapped one 80-pound duffel bag of cocaine to his body. Always prepared, he also carried a bag containing everything he might need to survive for a while. The kit included night vision goggles, knives, a 9mm automatic pistol, a 22 caliber Derringer, clips of ammunition, food rations, a compass, and ID with two different names. The bag was also stuffed with around 75 pounds of cocaine, with a street value of $15 million, along with $4,500 in cash and half a dozen gold coins. After giving Bill instructions about where he was to go once he landed, Drew set the plane to autopilot, and the two men got ready to jump. As the aircraft was nearing Knoxville, Tennessee, Bill closed his eyes and jumped landing safely less than half a mile away from downtown Knoxville. Drew was next, but shortly after pulling the ripcord, he became entangled in his parachute. The situation was hopeless, and after hundreds of jumps, he knew this one would be his last. 
he landed headfirst onto the driveway of a Knoxville home and, not surprisingly, died on impact. The plane continued on until it ran out of fuel and crashed into a mountain over 60 miles away in North Carolina. Because of the camouflage clothing and bulletproof vest he had on, they thought he could have been military. But then they noticed his shoes, a pair of Gucci designer loafers. Not exactly standard military issue. Next to his body, authorities found his reserve chute. Curiously, the main parachute was not only found farther away, but it was unopened. It seems that when Drew bailed out of the plane, he was forced to activate the backup chute when the main one came loose. Once Drew was identified, it didn't take long for investigators to put the pieces of the puzzle together. In his pocket, they found the key to the wrecked plane. Drew was also carrying a piece of paper with several of his favorite sayings written out. One in particular read, There is only one tactical principle not subject to change. It is to inflict the maximum amount of wounds, death, and destruction on the enemy in the minimum amount of time. Bill, in the meantime, still had no idea what happened to Drew and went about following the instructions he was given. He walked to a grocery store, called a cab, and headed to a Knoxville hotel. Drew was supposed to pick him up, and the two would drive back to Kentucky, but he never arrived. Authorities were confident there was more cocaine than Drew had taken with him when he jumped. And they were right. Over 200 pounds was later found hanging from a tree near the Chattahoochee River. Even more was discovered farther north. When investigators raided Drew's home immediately following his death, they found poisons, explosives, and other chemicals including ammonium nitrate and tear gas. No one knew if he had plans to use them, but he certainly had everything he needed to wage a small war. Bill Leonard stuck to his story that he was an innocent passenger during the trip. Despite serious doubts by the prosecutor in the case, he was never charged. In early 1987, Henry Vance was indicted on charges of conspiracy and aiding and abetting transportation of a weapon used in a crime. Later that year, he was found guilty and received a 15-year prison sentence. When the illicit activities of the company were finally exposed, the public was in disbelief. Three months after the incident, the case made headlines again, but not because of Drew Thornton. This time, it was about the bear in the Chattahoochee National Forest. The animal had come across one of the packages of cocaine that was dropped from the plane. After eating almost 90 pounds of the white powder, the bear experienced a massive overdose and died. The remains of the bear were recovered, stuffed, and placed on display at the Chattahoochee River National Recreation Area. The strange part, aside from a bear dying of a cocaine overdose, is that its nickname eventually became Pablo Escobar, after the infamous drug lord. Forty years later, 
Pablo Escobar found a permanent home at a souvenir store in Lexington called Kentucky for Kentucky. If you're ever in the area, go check it out. Most people who visit have no idea about its strange history or how an organization dubbed The Company was responsible for its incredibly bizarre death. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.